From The Advocate magazine, this is LGBTQ and a I'm Jeffrey Masters, and today I'm talking to Stephen Canals, one of the creators of the new TV series Pose. If you don't know what Pose is, I'm impressed. It is everywhere right now, and for a really good reason. It is about the ball scene in New York City, and it has the largest cast of trans actors ever assembled. We talk about the challenges in getting this show made, what went into it, and how his vision for the show evolved while working with Ryan Murphy. We also get into his past, his youth. Stephen grew up in New York City during the 80s. This was during the AIDS crisis, during the crack epidemic, and these were all really visible things that left a very big impact on him. Now, if you enjoy the interview, please subscribe on iTunes. Subscribe, leave a comment, rank us five stars. All these things help our show grow. You can also check out our other recent interviews with people like Kate Bornstein and Wilson Cruz. All right, let's get to the interview. Without further ado, here's Steven. So you've been working on this script and the show for almost five years? Four. 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 Okay, for, so for somebody who's not been a part of ball culture, what compelled you to the story, made you keep returning to it year after year? Ooh, start with a big question. <laughs> um, well, I'm going to rewind sure. to 2004 to a young, closeted version of myself who is studying cinema at Binghamton University and am introduced to the balls by a professor who knew, I think she probably could sense that I needed to find community, you know, as this young brown kid, you know, who very clearly was afraid to use his voice. And so she introduced me to the balls she screened Paris is Burning for me, and I just I fell in love with this community. And the thing that I was so taken by in watching the documentary was that my parents grew up in Harlem. And so they grew up really right around the corner from where the balls were taking place in the 70s. And I don't even know that they knew that this this culture existed, that this community was around, um, but I certainly didn't. And I remember just being so incredibly moved by the fact that there were people who looked and sounded just like me, and I knew nothing about them. And I was born in 1980. You know, I was born just on the cusp of New York coming out of the heroin epidemic of the 70s, and then stage right enter the crack and HIV epidemic of the 80s. And so my existence was fraught you know, with addiction and with violence and with poverty. And those were all pieces that affected my experience growing up as a a young person, as a kid, much to the dismay of my my mom, who I think tried really hard to shield me from it all. But it's tough when you're, you know, born living in the projects. And anyway, cut to, it's now, you know, 24 years after my birth, and I'm introduced to this incredible community who, in the face of poverty and disease and violence created community and created a support network and a safety net for one another. And I thought, God, that's so beautiful. My experience was so different. They were living in the exact same community and time period that I grew up in. And yet look at how they just blazed this incredible trail and walked in their truth. You know, they were just their authentic selves. And 
that inspired me to come out of the closet. And at the time, I was studying film, and I thought I wanted to be the next Steven Spielberg because we had the same name. So. <laughs> <laughs> it sounds cheesy, but it's always fascinating to me how, how, for lack of better words, how one person can change your life without realizing it. Like this Truly. teacher just taking you and screening Paris is Burning and showing you like representations of brown queer people on screen in a community. It sounds like it changed everything. Oh, absolutely. I mean, she opened the door for me, you know, truly to step into my truth. And really what she did for me was for the first time really ever up until that point, I saw myself reflected back in this medium that I love so much because, you know, I grew up not seeing myself represented on film and television. I think like most young LGBTQ kids, you know, and if we're talking about intersectionality to be uh, Afro Latinx <laughs> queer person, I definitely didn't see myself in the eighties, you know? And so you find solace anyway, right? Like I still found content that I loved and, and especially as someone who just loves film and TV and, and always loved it from a very early age and consumed it at a voracious rate, um, you know, I was aware that I wasn't seeing my identity reflected back at me, but somehow it was still okay because I just loved the medium so much. But this was really and truly the first time where I thought, oh, this, this piece is checking all of my boxes, you know? They're queer, they're black and brown, they're in New York. It's why the, the documentary means so much to me. You know, I'll always have a really special place in my heart for, for Jenny Livingston's piece. Yeah. Every article written about Pose mentions Paris is Burning because of the similarities, but also because there are very, very few cultural references for ball culture. Have you heard from Jenny Livingston at all? Like, were you, did you guys consult her at all? Oh, yeah, she's a consulting producer oh, on she? the show. Oh, yeah, I didn't yeah. know that. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, she hmm. spent a couple days on set, and she's worked with us. Oh, fantastic. I, didn't, I had no idea. Yeah. So, um, so speaking of how this woman is, was a mentor, Ryan Murphy produced the show with you. Yes. And he has a really big name in Hollywood, and not just because he directed the 2010 film Eat, Pray, Love, which I like. Um, no, seriously, though. <laughs> For a show like this, do you think that it would have been made without a name like Ryan Murphy attached to it? That's a great question. I I don't know. I don't know. I uh, the idealistic part of me would like to say, of course it would. You know that at some point, someone would see that. You know, I as a young storyteller had the potential, you know, to write and produce this particular show. Um, but I'm not sure. I, you know, I wrote that first draft in 2014 and my mentor, friend and mentor, Neil Landau, who um, most folks would know as a screenwriter of Don't Tell Mom the Babysitter's Dead. Oh, with Tara Eisen. Uh-huh. Yes. He was my professor at UCLA when I wrote this first draft of Pose and he gave me incredible feedback, right? And he was very encouraging and and I felt really good about that draft. It was the first time in the two years that I was in that program where I felt like I'd really written something special, right? Like I felt like, oh, this will be my calling card. And then it went out into the industry and it just landed with a thud. And within, gosh, I want to say a month 
of completing that first draft, which for any writers out there who are listening, like you should never send out a first draft. Like you should always go back in and tinker around with it a bit more. But I was just feeling my oats at the time. Um, so I sent it out anyhow. And um, I had two major networks pass on it and give me just ter- like the most abysmal feedback. Like it was just like, this is, this is not good. It was just no bueno. And so, um, and that was tough. And I thought, well, I guess back to the drawing board, I guess it's not as special as I thought it was, you know? And, and I held on to it. And then a year later, um, I submitted it to, we have an internal screenwriting competition that the students organize at UCLA. And so I submitted two pilots and Pose being one of them. And it made its way to an exec who now, funny enough, three years later is one of my managers, but it made its way to her desk and she loved it so much without knowing who wrote it because there was no name on the title page, just, just Pose, just the, the name of the script. Um, but she sent it to all these managers and all these producers. And she was like, you just have to read this material. And so I, coming off of my now third year in the MFA program, a month away from graduating, had all these meetings with um, managers and with executives. And so it was incredible. And now this script, which a year earlier I thought was dead in the water, now suddenly was opening up all of these doors for me. But the incredible thing was that while it was opening the doors, it wasn't keeping me in the room, you know. And so most folks were not interested in investing money in telling this story. And, you know, what I was hearing countless times was, you know, I don't know who the audience for a show like this is. I don't know where a show like this would live, you know. And then I was getting the coded language. Like, it's very urban. Um, and then at a certain point, it, it really just transitioned. And I had execs who, to my face, would say, it's too black, it's too queer, there are too many trans characters, it's a period piece. Um, I now, in retrospect, recognize that um, studios and networks, they're not just investing in the material, but when they decide to greenlight any show or or film, that they're also investing in the storyteller, in the filmmaker. Um, and at that point, like I wasn't, hadn't been staffed yet, and so I think that was a, a part of it was, you know, here's this kid who just got out of an MFA program. And that's cool that, you know, you know how to write, but we're not necessarily interested in investing money in you. Um, and it wasn't until I met a producer, Sherry Marsh. We had this wonderful meeting and we met for two hours. And she said, listen, I think the time is now for this material and we should go out with it. And she just understood me and understood the material. And she's known Ryan for you know, about 20 years. She was able to get me in rooms to pitch it, which was wonderful. And, and one of those meetings happened to be Ryan, who got a hold of the script and said, I want to meet this writer and I want to hear I want to hear this pitch. And so we met for 45 minutes. And at the end of it, he said, okay, we're going to make that together. Wow. And I should add that he was already in talks to develop a show in this world. So he already had met with Jenny Livingston and he had talked to her about potentially adapting Paris is Burning into a show and then when he met me and saw my script because obviously i wrote it not having the rights to the documentary and i also i didn't want the show to be an adaptation of the documentary because you know the doc is great but it's an hour and 20 minutes and you know there's so much more to the world and to the lives of these individuals who are part of the ballroom community and so my 
original pilot really, I think it's it's what you see in Pose now, right? It's investigating not just culturally what the ballroom meant to these individuals, but also what was happening sociopolitically in New York at that time. And I think he really responded to that. And so that's when we pivoted. And That is incredible timing. Absolutely. Can you imagine had I not, had my managers not connected me to Sherry? I mean, it's, this is how I know that there's something greater than me, regardless of what you call it, whether it's, you know, God or Allah or the universe, that there's something greater than me, some greater power that is absolutely looking out for me. Because had I not met with Sherry or had I, you know, moved forward with some other project summer of 2016, like I may not have ever met Ryan. Oh, and then Ryan moves forward with his own ball project and then you can't make yours because there already is one. Exactly. Oh, wow. At what point in the process did you bring in Janet Mock and Arlita J, who are trans? Um, they came into the process just as we were beginning to write episode three of eight of an eight episode season. So Ryan, Brad, and I we broke we broke the season, knowing that things could change, and things absolutely did. Um, and then we wrote the first two episodes because, you know, Ryan was very clear that he thought we should have a, a small room. He wanted it to be just a handful of people, really intimate, like a really, a, a true brain trust. Um, and he smartly recognizes that if you want other, whether it's writers or directors, to understand the look and the feel and the tone of the show, um, then you were going to have to have a couple of episodes already written. And so we wrote the first two together, um, Brad, Falchuk, Ryan, and I, um, and then brought writers in after writing the second episode so that they would have a sense of where we were going and what the what the show reads like on the page. And so they obviously, once they came in the room, they gave us notes on those first two episodes so that we can continue to add more layers and texture um, to the narratives that we already began. And then as a group, we went in and we just, we broke and then wrote the last five Donald Trump is a fairly overt presence in the script. Did that change after the election or was he always a part of it? No, he was always a part of it because we recognized that that was the rise of Donald Trump was the 1980s. In New York City. In New York, you know, and so many of the decisions that he made impacted black and brown people. And so it just, it felt organic to the world and to the story that we were telling. And it just, it also, I think the conversation we had was, it felt inauthentic. Like we knew that the perception would be, oh, we just threw in Donald Trump because of the election, what was happening politically in our country today. When in reality, it was like, no, it, you know, we have to tell this story because if we don't, I think our worry was we would get clocked then for not being, um, you know, giving an accurate representation of of what that time period was like. Yeah, I mean, I think it's fascinating to tie him in with what is happening in the AIDS crisis, just to see, like, the dichotomy. I I think that the show is correcting history and inserting people of color and trans people within the AIDS crisis. And also just within, like, the history of LGBTQ people specifically, since it is a period piece. Mm -hmm. We often see trans people on screen in modern stuff. I think for like so many marginalized communities, the AIDS crisis actually hasn't stopped. It's kind of like drawing that line from now to then and saying, look, what is what has improved for white people has not been the same. There's a rich history of 
LGBTQ, but specifically trans erasure. You know, and it's funny because I was just having a conversation with a friend and we were talking about Bayard Rustin, you know, and he was, he wrote um, speeches for Martin Luther King Jr., right? And he was a black gay man and he was part of that inner circle, you know, and yet very few people, I think, know who he is and about his contribution, you know, he is someone who hasn't ever been given that shine. And so, you know, it's, again, I think there's just been a very long, rich history of that happening. I feel the exact same way about, like, the Black Lives Matter movement. It wasn't until three years in that I found out that Patrice Cullors and Alicia Garza are queer women. And I I thought, due to a, a lack of research, but I thought just from, like, the visual politics of DeRay being on late night shows talking about Black Lives Matter, I thought that DeRay created it. And that's nothing against him, but it's fascinating that we are still like allowing like women of color to be like pushed aside. Yeah, we are not who the mass media wants to center. Period. And that's why I wonder, without a name like Ryan Murphy that TV trusts, could this show have been done right with trans women in the writer's room, with trans directors and crew members, with there being five leading characters that are trans played by five trans actresses? I think, you know, without like the name Ryan Murphy that we trust, I wonder if TV execs say we can't have all that. Yeah, it is not lost on me that a cisgendered white man who also happens to be gay, um, but that a cisgender white man had to say, this is going to be my next project for it to move forward. You know, early, I think what happens early on in a lot of careers is that you take the scraps, right? You take the first thing that is offered to you, you work with whomever because you just so desperately want to see the material made and you just want to launch a career. Yeah, you need a name. Absolutely. Um, I understand that. Um, I am so fortunate to have met arguably the most prolific television producer ever who was willing to invest in me and in my material and elevate me from... Because, I mean, if we're looking at my career as shoots and ladders, like, I went from the very bottom to the very top. I went from being a staff writer to being a co-executive producer and a creator on a show where my name is listed with Ryan Murphy and Brad Falchuk. Like, that's insane. Yeah, it is. Right? But I think what's wonderful, and I think this speaks to who Ryan is as a storyteller and as a creator and as a advocate and an ally, is that he really, truly is committed to not just equality, but to equity. Right. And we see that in his half foundation. Can you just explain what that is? Because I've asked around when I was doing research talking to you, and I find that many people in the industry have no idea what it is, even. So, the half foundation, so Ryan created the half foundation because he recognized that there were not enough women directing episodes of television. And so, the half foundation, which was created by Ryan, is committed to having half of all the episodes of any Ryan Murphy television produced show being directed by women, LGBTQ people, people of color. And that is incredible, especially for the quantity that he has. Truly. It also, it shouldn't be a thing that other shows look at and think like, ooh, 
<laughs> we can't do, oh, they're doing that? Like, that should be, unfortunately, the default. I should add that beyond ensuring that there are, that there's diversity in terms of the directing slots on Ryan Murphy shows, we also have half mentees. And so those are folks who are, it's basically an internship. And any half mentee, once they're selected, they shadow a director while they are directing an episode of a Ryan Murphy television show. So all the episodes of Pose had an LGBTQ half mentee shadowing our directors. That's amazing. They also were compensated for that work. Correct. That's wild. So we talked about how Ryan Murphy helped to get the show made and produce it and create it with you. Working with him specifically, though, what were some of the things that you learned from him? I've learned so much. Do we have another hour? You know, I think the thing that I've learned about Ryan, this is just at the forefront right now because I was just having a conversation with a friend telling them about this, is just to be unapologetic for who I am. You know, Ryan really and truly, and I've said this to him directly, like he's a disruptor, right? He is someone who really just wants to shake up the television landscape and shake up the industry. And so he has worked hard and cultivated a career where he can do that, you know, and that's not to say that it's easy, you know, like there definitely are battles that he has to go into to ensure that the material is protected. But I I love that he is just so brazen and has verve and he approaches the material with heart. And I think, you know, the one of the most important lessons that Ryan gave to me early on in terms of pose was that first draft was very gritty. It was very dark. Um, we had a murder and there was a sexual assault in that first episode. And he, we had leaned into that initially. And then one day he came in the room and we had already written the first draft of the pilot. We were actually several drafts into that pilot. We were moving on to the second episode. And he said, I think that we may have broken the episode wrong and I think we should go back and revisit. And I was very hesitant to do that. I was like, no, I think what we have is great. Um, you know, and, and I, my gritty, dark sensibility, I'm like, no, this is fantastic. And he was like, no, I, I don't know. And so he talked about the importance of creating television that is universal, right? And he talked about the importance of a show like this being accessible to everyone. He was like, I recognize that you and your mind have a very particular audience that you want to show up and who you're creating the show for. Um, but this is a, this is a community that we've never seen on television. And these are black and brown, queer and trans bodies who have never occupied space in this way before. And so if we get it wrong, you know, the likelihood that other people who have other stories to tell with this community may not ever get to tell them. And so I, th I thought about it. And I really struggled with that. And I thought, well, you know, I don't, I don't know. And then I, I met with a friend who happens to be a um, black lesbian who said, to me very directly, I'm so tired of seeing our community represented as the thug, the drug dealer, the body in the gutter. And I thought, oh my God, she's right. And so I went back into the room and I, I mentioned that to Ryan. And he said to me, you know, the joy and the love that you feel being a queer person of color and that you have for your community infuse the work with that same joy. And it just, it just transitioned. And so I think that what you, I hope that what the audience feels when they watch Pose is that joy, you know, that we don't shy away from the truth of the time, yeah. you know, that we still talk about AIDS, we still talk about 
you know, poverty and issues of class. And we talk about identity. And I think you're able to get away with those things and, and like survival sex work because the joy is there. I mean, I think the show is about chosen families and finding community at its heart. And I, I think that like it's in Pose more than any other show I've seen. I've seen that chosen family isn't just like a cute word. It is a a vital part of the queer experience. And it's it's life-saving for these characters, as it is for so many people off screen. What we talk about in the room is chosen family equals safety net. And then especially for this community in the 80s. It's also really nicely exemplified because they're houses and they have mothers and they're literally calling each other mother mm-hmm. and son. Going back to you, before you, in between your undergrad and your grad degree, uh, at USC, you worked in higher ed. UCLA. UCLA. Oh my god! <laughs> oh my god! I'm gonna hit. You worked in higher ed. I did. What What did you do specifically? Um, I started off in residential life as a hall director, and then I went to grad school. Um, I studied student affairs. My graduate research focused on uh, the variables that affect the experiences of students of color at predominantly white institutions. And after completing my degree and completing my research, um, I then transitioned into working in multicultural and intercultural affairs offices. So my last official title working in higher education was the Associate Director of Gender and Sexual Orientation Initiatives in the Office of... Now I'm blanking on the name of it. It was like the Office of Student Support. So I ask because it seems like there is a extremely direct line from that to the work you're doing now. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, you know, the very first lesson that I learned in grad school was my responsibility as a higher education practitioner is to enter a space, assess the landscape, um, identify where there are gaps, either in programs, initiatives, policies, et cetera, and then use my my platform, my privilege, my knowledge to create programs, policies, initiatives to fill in those gaps. And so I brought that with me into my practice as a screenwriter. So in grad school, when I entered UCLA and the first thing I remember thinking, especially once I transitioned out of features and into writing episodic work, was, okay, where are there gaps? Who are we not seeing represented? What are the stories that aren't being told? Um, and so those are the stories that I started putting on the page. I think that goes to a... Uh, uh it goes to a point that I love making about diversity, where we need to tell these stories because people need to see themselves reflect on screen. And but also, it's really good for the bottom line too, you know. And Absolutely, it, it just like putting these stories out there, but also like behind the scenes when you have diverse workforces <laughs> on camera uh, in companies, it it's good for the bottom line. So, I, like, I wish that more executives like could see the data behind that. Yes, and I, I mean, I'm gonna take it one step further and say that I mean I'm always coming at it from a I try to come at the work from a pure heart space because I understand that this is also a business Um, but I and I would never want to say that I'm not in it for the business I'm aware of it like it's my career right and so this is how I make a living Um, but 
I also really truly believe in the restorative nature of art and creativity. And so I think when I think of the bottom line and, and what a show like Pose can mean for communities who have never been represented, I go back to the very last day that we were shooting our balls, which was about three weeks, a month ago. And two young individuals walked up to me and they were like, hey, I just want to say thank you so much for having us. And I was like, well, no, thank you. Thank you for being here. You know, like you're helping to make our show. And one of them grabbed my hand and, and with tears in their eyes said, you know, I never thought that it would be possible for me to have a career. Like I've always loved performing, but I just never thought that that would ever be my path. And being on this set and specifically seeing the actresses who happen to be trans and happen to be women of color being directed in a show that we know is going to be on television has given me the inspiration to pursue it full time. That's what I think about. You know, I think about those 200 black and brown bodies who are in all of those ballroom communities who are not just background actors, but also happen to be individuals who are actually from the ballroom community who are being paid to be there, who are watching their own community, right? They're watching their people occupy space in this really incredible way. And they get to go home and say, I could do that too. And hopefully that's the experience of people watching as well. I guess I bring up the money thing just because it's the executives who are greenlighting this and they're not going to make a show that's not going to, you know, hopefully bring in viewers. Yeah, I mean, I think there, it goes beyond money. Like, if we're going to talk about the business of it, yeah. like, obviously, you want you want to make money, right? You want to monetize. Because ultimately, what we're doing is we're monetizing an experience. Um, but I think, especially, like, if we specifically, let's look at and investigate the proliferation of Black content that's happening right now, right? So you're, you're Blackish, you're Insecure, you're Atlanta, um, Power, which recently just debuted. So and just to name a few... These are shows that are not just being critically hailed, but they're also receiving awards attention, right? So they're winning Emmys. They are, you know, getting Golden Globe nominations. And so I think all of that works in tandem. You know, I, obviously money is important, but I think particularly if we're talking about content around marginalized communities, it's very layered. It is, I don't know that it's as simple as it's making money. Gotcha. Yes, to absolutely. Was that a discussion or a worry in the room about that you're mainstreaming this community? It was. And I think one of the things that we wanted to be conscious of in creating Pose and in telling the story was that we don't replicate past wounds, right? So we did not want to colonize and then appropriate the community, which is the reason why we have so many consultants from the community. You know, so if you watch an episode of Pose up on the judging panel, you have three of the survivors from Paris is Burning who all season worked as as judges, right? So we have Freddie Pendavis, Dr. Sol Williams, and Grandfather Hector Extravaganza who are all up there, you know? And then we have Jose Extravaganza who was a dancer um, for Madonna back in the early 90s um, who's also up on that on that panel as a judge. And so they all were such an integral part of the storytelling process. You know, they 
were always available to us if we needed to call them to work through story notes. You know, they would always give us ideas. They were there, obviously, when we were shooting. So they would also let us know very quickly. They were very quick to check us and tell us, like, that's not how it happened. That's not accurate. You know, so we really brought the community in. I mean, it truly is. The making of of Pose was a communal experience, you know, and the ballroom community was such a major part of the look and the feel of, of the show. Yeah. In the way that actors are typecast, do you find as a writer and a creator that you're also typecast as, well, he can only do queer stories and trans stories, et cetera? Well, that's an interesting question. And I probably will have a better answer for you a year, two years, five years from now. Um, I haven't, I think because I've been so enmeshed in pose, um, I haven't really had the bandwidth or, you know, my team certainly hasn't entertained offers for other, you know, whether it's television or film. Um, so I'm not sure how people perceive me now. I'm, I'm guessing they probably will because usually people want to put you in a box. And this is not to say that I don't have other stories that I would love to tell because I would, you know, like I grew up as a kid of the eighties. So like, I would love to write, a Transformers movie or a Thundercats movie, you know, like I love those stories as much as I love stories like Pose, which not only educate, but also entertain. So like I'm I, the full spectrum of storytelling I love, but I will say that there are so many narratives, so many stories to be told within the LGBTQ spectrum, right? And so many stories to tell around the black and brown diaspora that haven't been told. So if my entire career from this point until my last breath is only telling those stories, then that would be okay because our stories still haven't been told for so long. And while you're under no obligation to include queer characters in your storytelling, like, don't you feel obligated though to include queer characters? (laughs) Absolutely. Well, I think, you know, you want to see yourself reflected back, A. And B, you know, one of the first lessons I learned at UCLA was the work has to be personal. And that's not to say that I couldn't write a story that doesn't have a queer or trans or black or brown person at the center. But there's representation matters. And that's a really simple notion. And so I think that my work will always center center marginalized communities in that way. And hopefully at some point we'll stop having to use the language like marginalized communities. True. You know, I think we're a long ways away, unfortunately. We are, but I'm, you know, I'm hopeful. I am hopeful. I think that I look at the, I mean, progress is slow, but I look at the progress that we've made. You know, the fact of the matter is when I was driving home, whatever this was, maybe a month or two ago, it was right before the show debuted and I look up and I see a poster in all of its pink and red glory and it's MJ Rodriguez who plays Blanca just hovering above all of us and I burst into tears and I, when I tell people that story, the first place they always go to is, oh, it was really emotional because it's your first show and, you got, and I'm like, no, 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 it has nothing to do with that. It was about seeing this beautiful Afro-Latina trans woman occupying space in that way on a billboard that says that there's a show that's coming out in June on FX, you know, that her, 
her story and her life matters and deserves to be centered in that way, you know, and that there are going to be a ton of other young trans kids and queer kids who are out and some who still aren't and those who are questioning and those who are living in urban areas and those who are living in rural areas who just want to know that they matter, who just want to know that their experience is valid, who just want to be affirmed. And now we're going to have a place to go for that to happen. That's, I mean, it just, I was done. I was done. Can you believe that you who grew up in the projects in New York City and then was teaching higher ed that it was you that like put this show on the air. I feel like that's like sounds rude, but you know what I'm saying. I think you know no. what I'm saying though. No, I do. Like, can you believe that it was it was like, you were part of that? I I pinch myself every single day, you know. And I think it. it <laughs> we're gonna have a Barbara Walters moment here. <laughs> um, I don't know why I was fortunate enough to make it out of that environment from there to here. I don't know. I really don't know. And it's so overwhelming when I think about it. Um, you know, India Moore, who plays Angel, she and I, I'm 15 years older than her, but she and I grew up in the same area of the Bronx. And she grew up in the projects across the street from my high school, which is, my high school is now closed, just to note. And so... During her audition, we were talking and we realized that we not only live in the same community, but she and I, 15 years apart, went to the same elementary and junior high schools. And so every time I was on set and she was shooting a scene, I would walk up to her and I would say, how are you feeling today? And she would say, I'm feeling present. And I would look her in the eyes and I would grab her hands and I would say, from the Bronx to here. From the Bronx to here. Because who knows? Like... why or how? And I suppose in some ways it isn't my responsibility to even ask that question of why or how. I'm just so humbled and so filled with gratitude that I am, that I'm here and that I get to tell this story. Like it is beyond. I don't know that I will ever, I hope I do, but I don't know that I will ever in my career ever create content or tell a story that means more to me than this one to be able to create a show that shows that a we as lgbtq people and we as people of color and those of us who live in the intersections of those identities that we're not a monolith you know to create a show that shows the world that in spite of how we may be viewed or treated that we still have joy and love you know, like that to me, that's everything. That's everything, you know? And so I could never create anything else for the rest of my life. And it wouldn't matter because I know that I've created this show and and that is enough. That's an amazing place to leave it on. Thank you for being here. Thank you. Yeah, of course. And that's our show. If you enjoyed the interview with Steven, please tell your friends. Text some group chats, tweet about us, write an article. When you spread the word to people you know, it is one of the biggest ways you can help new people find our show. So big thank you for that. And then I want to say too that with the midterms coming up, GLAD is here to help you amp your voice. They want to make it easier than ever for you to access the tools you need to vote and help you speak out on the issues that matter. If you want to learn more and make sure that your voice is heard, go to glad.org slash amp your voice. 
That's glad.org slash amp your voice. We are broadcasting from the Advocate Magazine studios in Los Angeles. The Advocate is the longest running LGBT news magazine in the country. They were founded in 1967. You can also check out their other podcasts like The Advocates and Pride.com's podcast Work, W-E-R-Q. Special thanks to our partners at Panoply, our old home after Buzz TV, Jason McMurdy, and everyone for listening. 